Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. So from an introduction point of view, you can see we've got 71 verses this morning. And so I thought about just having Jesse read all 71, doing a benediction, and it's lunchtime, but we'll talk about them. So um, this morning, we're really going to dive into something. Um, We've been going through John, and and we're up to John 6, and um, we know that the Bible is full of hard teaching. There's a lot of teaching that really goes against the grain of our human desires, right? It goes against what we like. It may go against what we understand culturally or what we understand spiritually. And there's a time when sometimes we end up running into theology that we struggle with. And my encouragement this morning is that we keep pushing in that struggle and that we study through it and that we, you know, have our hearts enlightened and stuff by the Holy Spirit to come to accept and understand the theology Jesus gives. As you can see in the passage Jesse already read where we're going to end up in the end, you see some disciples stay and most leave, and it's the kind of thing where when we run up against theology we don't like, we run up against teaching we don't like and stuff, it's tempting to want to say, that's not for me, right, and to choose Jesus on our terms rather than choosing Jesus on his terms and understanding the power of Christ, and, you know, God's law is written on our hearts, so we have this basic understanding of good and bad and, and stuff like that, but we come up against theology sometimes that we struggle with, and Paul makes this comparison with the Corinthian church to food. He says, you guys are drinking milk and you need to be to solid food. Now, food is a love language I can understand, right? We know what's tasty, what we crave, what we like, right? And, and, and we like the carbs and we like the salt and we like the fat and we love all that tasty stuff. But there's a time when we need what's nutritious, right? We need, we need the kale and the spinach of the faith. And this morning is gonna end up kind of in this kale and spinach area of the faith. Okay, so stick with me on that. It may not taste good going down, but it's the nutrition we need. And I think as we learn to love and grow in Christ, we can, we can um, have the Holy Spirit come along and, and just open us up to accepting that kale and spinach of the faith. So one last thing, uh, Jason's outlined in, in preaching here in the last few weeks and stuff, this key structure of how John records the works of Jesus, right? A lot of times there's a miracle followed by hard teaching. And we've seen a few miracles already, right? At the wedding in Cana, he turned the water into wine. This was a public thing. Many people saw this, partook in it. He healed the official son publicly. Again, people saw this. And he healed the paralytic at the pool. And yet again, people saw this. And we're going to see two miracles today. And the first one, he feeds 5,000 people, and really more than 5,000, with fishes and loaves, just a few Uh, barley loaves and a few fish he feeds all of them and this is again public lots of people see this but he does another one privately and he does another one just that the disciples see it's under the cover at night it's out in the middle of the sea of galilee it's it's not something he did for everyone and we're going to look at why that is and so he gives his teaching to all but he knows that there's kind of two groups of people in the audience there's those that God is moving to know and hear it and accept it. And there's those who are going to hear it and say, I don't want that kale and spinach. I don't like it. I'm going home. And that's where we stand today. As we walk through this, we want to stop and think through, you know, whether we accept this or we, or when we eat the kale and spinach or we go home. And uh, I think uh, the way to summarize this is on the next slide. So 
I think in God's mercy, he provides for the many. He gives to many, but his true calling is to few. And we're going to see as we go through verses 1 through 15, by Jesus' kindness, people are given provision. By Jesus' rescue, the disciples are protected. By God's truth, we're going to see people get offended. But by God's grace, disciples are called and saved. So we'll walk through these. And uh, as we go through this morning, I'm just going to open us up in prayer. Lord, be with us as we study your word. God, open our hearts and our minds to hear your word. Lord, give me faithfulness in speaking of your word. And Lord, grow each and every one of us in our faith. We thank you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So verses 1 through 15, we're going to start and look at by Jesus' kindness, people are given provision. Starting in verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So starting out with the first verse, it says, after this. So what is this that he's referring to? There's actually a number of things if you cross-reference through the Gospels. So we know from John 5, Jesus just had this confrontation with the Pharisees, right? And he's basically saying they're under judgment. They are ready to kill him. And as, G- as, as Jason had said last week, right, they were upset with him over breaking the Sabbath, yet they were willing to kill him and break the Sabbath, right? There was a total hypocrisy. They weren't recognizing who he is. They wanted to kill him. And if you go back to Matthew, you find that this kind of follows shortly after Herod's murder of John the Baptist. He had John the Baptist beheaded, and Herod believed Jesus might be John the Baptist come back from the dead. And then in Luke 9, it says that Herod actually wanted to meet Jesus, and then Luke 9 and Mark 6 both describe that the disciples are coming back from their, uh, their mission. Jesus had sent them out in pairs and said, go into the towns, teach and heal. And they had done this. They had healed people. They had taught about Jesus. They'd come back excited, telling all that they had done. And so many people followed them back. There were so many people around that it said they were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat. And that Jesus wanted to take them out for rest. So he was taking them out to a desolate place. Because they were so busy, they were tired, they needed rest. So after this, at this point when Jesus is going to lead them out, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd followed him. 
So they're not going to get their rest, are they? This large crowd is following, and uh, they, they saw the signs. They want more of Christ. Now, again, in verse 4, it says, now the Passover, feast of the Jews, was at hand. So keep in mind, people are going and following Jesus rather than going to Jerusalem or going back to their hometowns and stuff to feast for Passover and recognize Passover. They're following him instead. So that's a very big deal. It also says in other gospels that it was evening. So these people are out there. They're hungry. They have no place to stay. They're, they're not, they don't have food. They've just been following him blindly, um, you know, trying to see these miracles, wanting to be healed. And so they have very little, right? And, they, you know, as, as Andrew says, you know, there's a boy with five barley loaves, but what is that for so many? Because, again, the disciples are thinking, what can we do with this? You know, here we came out here and they followed us, and now we don't have food. What are we going to do? But, of course, Jesus knew what he was going to do, and he, that's why he tested him. So when it says, have the people sit down, and there was much grass, and it says the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and Matthew confirms that women and children were in addition to this. So there's probably somewhere between ten and 15,000 people. And yes, I'm fully aware of the thing that the guys got to sit down. I'm assuming the lady sat down as well. I don't know. But let's say, let's, I'm just going to say 15,000 for a round number. Let's just say there's about 15,000 people. All these people get to miraculously eat, right? Jesus has provided for every one of them to eat their fill, right? This is done for the masses. This isn't just for the disciples. It's a public proclamation, a public miracle, a public thing for every one of them to see. And they collect back up 12 baskets of fragments. So they have more left over than when they started. And the people see this and say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 14, and they're referring to Deuteronomy 18 that foretells that God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among you. And so this miracle is for the masses. And here they're getting their material needs met. And they're you know, saying, this is the prophet. This is the guy. They recognize him, and that sounds like a confession, doesn't it? To say, hey, this is, this is the guy God sent. This is him. This is the one. And they think they know what they want, but it's not Jesus' time, so he's not going to be taken to be king, right? They want a king. Again, they're thinking politics and earthly situations and stuff. They want to take him to be a king, but it's not his time for this, and it's not the kingship that he seeks, and so he withdrew again. So it says, you know, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we see God, by Jesus's kindness, people get provision. And then he goes back up the mountain by himself. And as we start looking beyond uh, verse 15 into 16 to 21, we see that Jesus went up the mountain alone. And cross-referencing the Gospels again, it says that, um, you know, that Jesus dismissed the crowd. And Matthew states, Jesus sent the disciples away in the boat and then went up the mountain. They're not leaving him when they get in the boat, because we hear Jesus goes up the mountain, the disciples get in the boat, and when we understand Matthew, we, or I'm sorry, Mark um, and Matthew together, he dismissed the crowd, sent them in the boat, because it seems odd that they would cross when there's unsettled weather, right? Or even just to cross in the evening in the first place. You would think, you know, I'm not a sailboat guy, I know nothing about it, but I would think going out in the evening would not be preferential. I would think you'd want to do it during the day. Maybe I'm wrong. Some of you are boat folks. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But it says here in verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. 
Then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this is a miracle that the disciples see. Again, there's not this crowd around. It's not something done for the public. It's not something done for everybody. And it's kind of odd. We stop and think about this. You know, the disciples thought it was a ghost. When you kind of cross-reference with Matthew and Mark, they see something coming across the sea. They think it's an apparition or a ghost, and they're scared. And then, you know, in Matthew's account, it covers how Peter called to him and and stepped out on the sea and began walking as well and took his eyes off Christ and sank. And then Jesus rescues him there in the boat and the, the weather clears. And he says, it is I, do not be afraid. And they took him in the boat and immediately they were on land which they were going. So note that when Jesus got in the boat, the wind was calm and they arrived immediately. So again, this is a miracle. First of all, walking on water, helping Peter walk on water, the storm calming and arriving immediately, all happening miraculously because of the work of Christ. But what's going on in the heart of these disciples at the time? It doesn't say so in John, but it does say in Mark. In Mark 6.52, has an interesting take on this. It says, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. So again, he, he draws this connection together between the loaves and them not understanding that miracle and their hearts being hardened and being astounded at this miracle, right? It's not just the people. It's not just, uh, you know, the, the crowd that saw the, the food being miraculously provided who had hardened hearts, but even the disciples themselves had hardened hearts, And these miracles are meant to be a sign of Jesus' divinity, that he is who he says he is, that he can perform these works that no man can perform to show that he is the son of God. And even the disciples still need these miracles to believe, even though they've been walking with him and they've seen all these miracles that have been mentioned and probably saw however many more that have not been mentioned in the gospels. But even they still have a hard heart. Even they still need miracles to see and believe. So we've got this miracle done publicly, right, for everybody. We've got this miracle done quietly on the side here for the disciples. And what do we make of this? We see how this story unfolds here, and we're going to look at verses 22 to 40. And we see on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. 
Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never, never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son of man and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So we see here, this crowd is still there in the morning, right? And they know that Jesus, they didn't see him leave. So they want to go find him again. And these other boats from Tiberias, right? There's more people coming. So out of that, say, 12 or 15,000 that were there for the miracle of the bread being split and, and provided for to everyone, there's more people coming. And they're trying to find him. And they're looking for him. And Jesus pinpoints it when they find him. And they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So here he's done these signs, Right? They've got these miracles. They've got these things they've seen. They're following him for a reason. But he knows they're still coming for dinner, right? They're coming to eat. They're coming to be filled in their felt needs, in their hunger, or in their, uh, their desire for provision. And what they end up wanting in verse 28, you see this. They want a law. They want, what, what do we do to do the works of God? How do we measure ourselves? How do we make sure we're right? And he's saying the work is to believe in Jesus. And this is another common theme throughout John. To be saved, we need to believe, right? We, it's, it's belief in Christ, confessing and knowing that he is the Savior, that he is the one who shed his blood and rose again on the third day. It's this belief and trust in God, cleansing our hearts of our sin that God uses to bring us to him. It's not by law or human action. It's not piety. It's not through showing how wonderful we are. It's not about fixing everything we've done wrong. It's by belief because we can't live the law. We can't live in, in complete restitution and restoration with everybody. We struggle in sin and we always will. So they ask him for another sign. What sign do you do? Right? Yet, yet again, right? He's, he just fed them miraculously and they still want more signs. And it's not even like they hide their motivation a little. It's like, what sign do you do? Mm, you know, we ate bread in the wilderness and all. Maybe that would be a great sign, right? It's like, like when your two-year-old says, dad, you want me to be happy, right? Yeah, cookies make me happy, dad. It's like, I get it. You know, it's like, we understand. And we, they're not even hiding their motivation a little bit, even if they think they are. Jesus knows they want food, not him. Because he even said, right? this bread that comes down from heaven. And they say, hey, give us this bread. And he's like, I am this bread, right? I'm the one you need. So he starts correcting their understanding here, right? They think they know what they want. They want him to be king, right? Because they want their situation and their livelihoods and things like that to be better. Not because they want to deal with the sin nature of their hearts. And so they're asking for this bread always. And Jesus is like, okay, you say you want it. Here you go right? And he starts giving them some of this hard teaching. Kale and spinach, like I said, it's the things that we struggle with that we don't necessarily crave, but we need. 
And he says, I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You know, and he, he switches from like third person when he says, you know, he who comes and stuff like that. And he switches to say I, right? There's this switch in the pronouns that he's using, right? From he to I, instead of he who comes down from heaven, he says, I am the bread of life. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. He's like, stop thinking of it as something else. It's me, and then I'm right here. And instead of he whom the Father sent, he says, I have come down. And he says this at the end in verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, this is not familiar, right? This isn't really what they want. This isn't in the tradition of their fathers. This is something different. He's calling them away from the old tradition, right? He's calling them away from what they think they know. He's calling them away from something that they feel like they intuitively understand, yet can never do, right? And a lot of times we grow up in, in traditions and things like that, and when we're confronted with different teaching or we're confronted with something we don't like or we're confronted with a biblical passage that's tough, sometimes we just say, that's not for me, or I don't like that. And we can take this Thomas Jefferson view. Thomas Jefferson famously has a Bible that he cut passages out that he didn't like because he wanted to pick and choose like a salad bar. I'll take this. I don't like that. I'd rather have this instead. And he, it's, you know, I've not seen it personally, but my understanding is that Bible still exists there at Monticello at his home. And here they want to lean back on these traditions. They don't want to accept this. And we see that they're taking offense because as we continue on here, in verse 41, it says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Right? They're asking for bread, and they're not liking the answer. This isn't what they want. This isn't what's comfortable. This isn't the tradition they grew up in. And even, even in verse 42, there's, you know, there could be even be a bit of a hint of accusation here, right? And they say, you know, isn't this the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Well, we know in his birth it was kind of scandalous, right? Because Mary's pregnant before she's married. Joseph had even considered divorcing her until the angel came and told him, explained to him what was happening. He's saying, we know who you are. We watched you grow up. We know your story. We know your background. And now you want to say you come from heaven? A carpenter comes from heaven? Come on, right? They don't like this. And Jesus answered them, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that came down from heaven, comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So things go from odd and uncomfortable to weird, right? When he starts saying my flesh, everybody's kind of like taking a step back. Okay, this gets strange, right? But, you know, Jesus is doubling down on confronting their unbelief. And he's saying, you say you want this bread, I'm going to give you this bread. 
I am going to die, and you don't realize it yet. He's giving this bread. He's saying, I'm not here to feed your belly. I'm here to feed your soul. He's not just stating facts. He's actually stating, implying these grumblers have not learned from the Father. You see this in verse 45, right? Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There's something that happens in a person's soul that's going to lead them to God. Now, he's, trying, he's going to unfold this and explain this further, right? He's pointing in him, again in verse 47, to believe in him is to have eternal life. And he says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. He's saying the manna was not the point. The manna was a provision out of God's goodness. As they grumbled through the desolate forest, God gave them manna because of their grumbling. He's pointing out the futility of wanting this physical bread just to fill a belly. He's saying the Jewish fathers still died, right? It didn't, it didn't save them. The manna did not save them. It filled a belly, but it didn't save them. And in verse 51, he's saying, trusting in him, the true bread is what saves you from death. And the bread is his flesh. And Jesus went from talking about bread loaves and then talking in the third person about God's work to talking in, I am the bread, first person, and the bread being his flesh, right? He's, he's leading them down this path to try to explain to them that he is really the one they truly need. It gets deeper and deeper, and it gets a little more weird. And as we continue on, the Jews are going to call this out. They say, the Jews then, in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat, his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. So they're not just taking one step back. They're taking three steps back because this just got real strange compared to what they know. But when we stop and look at this passage from where we started here to where we're at now, before we get to this end section, there's a number of things I want us to recognize. We have the benefit of, of having the Bible canon, and we can go back and study, and we can see things. They, in their time, didn't necessarily have that, didn't always understand it, and, and the Spirit hadn't enlightened hearts to quite get it at the time of many people. Some people did, and they recognized it and followed Christ by His grace. But there is a lot of parallels to the Passover here. First of all, this happened at Passover time, right? Back in the beginning, remember it said at the time of Passover. So a time when people would have been going to Jerusalem, going to their hometowns, going and feasting and remembering the Passover, they instead followed Jesus. Now let's look at that. What is the Passover? So Passover was a time when they were in Egypt, still enslaved, right? And the lamb was slain. God told them, you spread the blood on your doorposts right? And you eat of that flesh of that lamb, the bitter herbs, 
right? And you partake of it. And then God led his people out of Egypt, right? He miraculously provided this bread in the wilderness and cared for them. God miraculously allowed his people to cross the Red Sea. He healed those when they looked at the bronze serpent, when the, the, when the Jewish people were being attacked by, by snakes, right? Moses had fashioned, God told Moses, fashion this snake and put it on a pole and hold it up. And if they're bitten, they look upon that, they will be saved. And the Jews grumbled about God's teaching. And ironically, they grumbled about the manna, remember? So these people are saying, hey, our fathers ate manna. Yay, that would be great. Well, the Jews didn't like the manna, right? They said, oh my goodness, manna again, right? They wanted quail, they wanted meat, they wanted something else. When we stop and look at some of this passage here and and some of the parallels to the Passover, remember just as God led his people out of Egypt into the wilderness, right? Jesus was trying to go out into a desolate place with his disciples and these people followed. They went out to a desolate place where they had no food. And Jesus miraculously provided bread. We see that God miraculously allowed his people to cross the Red Sea by parting the sea for them and then closing it up again on the Egyptians. Jesus miraculously crossed this water here in the Sea of Tiberias, walking on it. And then miraculously, they were at their destination at the end. Jesus said in verse 39 and 40, you know, all who look upon him when he is raised up will be saved. Just like the bronze serpent. You see how the Jews grumbled about God's teaching in the wilderness, grumbled about the manna, grumbled about Moses. And here we see the Jews grumbling about Jesus. God's providing for them. God is leading for them, and they don't like it. Just like at the time after the Passover during the time of Exodus, they want fed on their terms. They want to eat on their terms. They want God on their terms. They want peace and prosperity and comfort. And isn't this how we tend to approach Jesus in our culture here in America, right? This is why the best-selling Christian bookstores have have a whole rack full of peace and prosperity and health and wellness, right? Because we just want to kind of sprinkle some Jesus on our life to make it better. In general, culturally, right, we want to lean on Jesus. Teach me something I can, on Sunday, I can use on Monday, how to be a better dad, how to be a better spouse, how to be a better whatever, how to earn more money, how to have more peace. And a lot of times we don't want to approach Jesus on his terms. And in fact, I think we, we won't approach Jesus on his terms unless God draws us to do so. And we see this, we kind of run headlong into this doctrine of election that I know doesn't always sit well with us. We stop and think about it. And, and you know, within our churches, there is a lot of of discussion and debate about do we come to Jesus by a free will decision or do we come to Jesus because God draws us and we can't resist it? You know, does God call specific people to the faith or is God's invitation open to everyone? I think within this passage, we end up running headlong into this because we can take pieces of this passage and we can say, you know what, we come by free will, right? Jesus is saying, you know, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever comes to me again, verse 37, everyone who looks on the sun, verse 40, whoever believes, verse 47, if anyone, verse 51, whoever feeds on my flesh, verse 54, right? And you kind of line these things up, even just within this one passage, and you kind of get these verses that make it feel like, hey, there's this free will decision we all have to make. 
God's putting this invitation out and something within us will move and we will choose it and we will accept Jesus. I think that that feels comfortable to us, right? And we even kind of follow a model like within Christianity in the last 50, 60 years, even 100 years, where we tend to do things like evangelism to us often looks like, I'm going to hold this big event and we're going to have, you know, a concert or we're going to have, you know, I, I remember my youth group used to have like uh, guys from the power team come in and they'd break through big blocks of ice and they'd break through boards and all this. And then they'd share a gospel lesson. Or, you know, with youth group, like, well, let's take them to King's Island and then we'll have them sit and we'll talk about the kids who went to King's Island in 1987 and their bus was hit by a drunk driver on the way back and a bunch of the kids died and we'll, we'll put this emotional thing out there and we'll get kids to pray to receive Christ. And a lot of times we do this, like, well, we'll put this big event together, do this high pressure kind of sales thing with Jesus at the end and try to get people to pray to receive Christ. But look at what happens here, right? Jesus does these miracles and these people are saying, this is the prophet. Yet when the hard teaching comes, we're gonna watch them walk away. And a lot of times when we do evangelism in that style, we're doing more emotional manipulation and things like that. Now, some people come to faith that way. I came to faith that way. And I'm not saying it's bad or that people's decisions seem are invalid in any way. But a lot of times when we think that's it, that's what evangelism is, we're losing the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of this teaching. And a lot of times we're serving McDonald's instead of serving a kale salad right? We're telling people it's just easy. Pray to receive Christ, and you've got your fire insurance. Go do whatever, and just remember that you did it, you know, at one time. Like I said, when you stack up verses in this, in this passage that, that point to this, uh, an idea that, you know, this invitation is to everybody, and by free will, we'll choose it. We've got to go on the other side and take these verses that sounds like it's God's sovereign choice of who he draws to him. And verse 37 is interesting because this is a verse, Jason and I talked about this this week. This is a verse that we love one half of it and we don't like the other half, right? It's like when you ruin a hamburger by putting kale on it, you know what I mean? It's like, it's one of those things that we like half the verse, we don't like the other half. Verse 37 says, all that the father gives me will come to me. It's like, I don't like that. That doesn't feel good because that means God's in control. But then at the other side, it says, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Hey, it's whoever, so it's open to everyone, right? And even in this verse, there's this tension. When you look at some of the other verses, like verse 39, he says, I should lose nothing of all he has given me. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, right? There's some kind of action going on behind this. And I know this doctrine of election is something I wrestled with for a long time, and I was kind of confronted with it, rejected it. After I got married, Loretta had been, my wife Loretta had been discipled under a pastor who had really taught faithfully the word of God, and she had come to understand this doctrine of election. And I think, you know, a lot of people in their first year of marriage will argue over money and things like that, and it's like we would sit and debate theology because we're nerds, complete nerds. But I can recall there's one very influential theologian that, that I came across at that time that her, her brother-in-law had introduced us to, named Michael Horton. And he said when he came to Doctrine of Election and he read through Romans and got to Romans 8 and 9, he actually threw his Bible across the room in his dorm room at college and didn't pick it up for three days because it angered him so much. So it's like, how do we reconcile this? 
And I know for me, the way I wrestled with it, it was about a year and a half of wrestling with it. And eventually kind of what, what pulled me over to that side is as I looked through the Bible at all these verses that sound like free will, and I kind of line them up on one side, and I take all those passages that sound like election and put them on the other side, and I came to this realization, I can believe in election, and all the free will type verses make sense. They, I have no problem with them. And if I take that free will side, I have to ignore these election verses. And it was one of those sick feelings in my stomach to recognize I didn't choose God, right? He chose me. And there is no room for pride or arrogance or anything in that statement. But to recognize that by God's grace, he drew me to the gospel. By God's grace, he sustains me in the gospel. It's not because of any wonderful thing inside me. It's not because of anything great that I've done. It's not because I'm just so smart to figure it out. It's not because I found the key to the secret. It's because God did the work. And when we go through those passages and we start seeing this, right, the action verbs are God's, right? The Father gives, right? Has given, draws him learned from, right? It's like this, this comes from the Lord. And how do we reconcile this? I think when we stop and look backwards through the Bible and start recognizing the sovereignty of God and calling us to faith, we stop and look and say, okay, God chose Abraham. Why did he choose Abraham? Why Abraham? It wasn't because Abraham was a great guy. It's because he chose to choose Abraham, period. He chose to save Noah. Jacob, he loved and Esau he hated, right? How does that make sense? Moses was chosen, right? David was chosen because God did something he wanted to do. It wasn't who anyone else would have chosen, right? God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. He disciplined Nebuchadnezzar. God had this choice to make to even just sustain Israel when he could have destroyed them at any time in their unfaithfulness. We can see some examples of how he does this, right? In Acts 16, you see Lydia, and we see that the Lord, the verse actually says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said by Paul. And in Acts 13, as many who were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, we're Americans, right? We choose our destiny. We choose our path. We choose our profession, right? We're at a point now where, you know, we tell people they can choose to be anything they want to be and identify any how they want, right? Nobody's going to tell me I can and can't. Nobody's sovereign over me or my heart or my soul. And the thing is, is God is not an American and he's bigger than this. And we don't really get to choose what God does. And we don't really get to choose how he moves and where he moves and who he moves in. Now, we have a faithful call to share the gospel with anyone and everyone because we never know if we're planting seeds or watering seeds or what might happen in the future. But under this doctrine, again, there is, there's no room for arrogance. There's no room for um, patting ourselves on the back. It should be nonstop humbleness. Stop and look at who Jesus calls, right? Former prostitutes, tax collectors, fishermen, right? We're not in the high class, folks. When we're called by God, we're kind of in that loser class in that sense, right? We're, God's not choosing based on what the world sees as wonderful, right? We're called alongside 
people who have rough past, we have our own rough past, right? He chooses the lowly. So there's no room for pride in this, but I want to stop and look and let's go through the tail end of this passage here. John 6, verses 60 to 71. It says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, notice this, disciples grumbling about this. He said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So let's think about this. There were 5,000 men who were miraculously fed, plus the women and children. So let's say that's twelve to 15,000, plus some more boats came from Tiberias, plus he's teaching in the synagogue. And out of all those thousands of people, there's 12 staying. And how do those 12 stay? Because it was granted by the Father, and because Jesus chose them and would sustain them and would carry them. And when we're faced with hard theology and hard teaching, when we're faced with hard times, when we're facing problems in our marriage and problems in our health, problems just even in our, our spiritual life of struggling to understand God's goodness, of struggling to understand why he would have us go through difficult times, struggling to understand our faith, our very faith, the bedrock of our faith, Maybe we're struggling to understand the faith of others or the lack of faith of others. We're going to wrestle through some difficult truths that God is sovereign over it all, that he knows our sickness. He knows our marriage situation. He knows our faith. He knows what we're dealing with. And in his sovereignty, he's going to do things we may not like. But we have to stand here just like the disciples and say, where else do we go? Who else do we listen to? Who else can we follow? There is nothing else to follow. We're called as brothers and sisters here together to sharpen one another and to help each other through these kinds of difficult sayings, that we can wrestle through this scripture together, that we can do life together, that we can build the faith of one another. And iron being iron, and we don't have anywhere else to go. And unfortunately, we don't get to cherry pick and, and take, take Jesus like a buffet. I like this and don't like that. If you wrestle through the doctrine of election, that's fine because we all wrestle through it. Even when we believe that we don't like it, we, we wrestle through it. And it's not a requirement to believe it to be saved. And we would love as elders to help walk people through it if you're questioning it and, and want to understand it further.
we are always open to do so. And it's not, like I said, it's not a requirement for salvation or anything like that, but I think it will help unlock so many mysteries of the Bible and help, help open up what God was doing, especially all through the Old Testament. To understand his sovereignty really tends to take scripture and, and, and open it up to understanding. So brothers and sisters, I, I, I pray that this finds you well. I pray that this kind of teaching that gets difficult and frustrating is something that you take seriously in your heart. And again, I'm always open to discuss it. And so is Jason and so is Ryan and numerous other folks here. But I want to pray that we take God's teaching for what it is and we give him the glory through it and that we uh, take our time to wrestle through it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. God, that you give us hard teaching and the fact that we can sit through hard teaching and Lord, wrestle with hard teaching. The fact that you weigh it on our hearts and you make us think about it, you make us work through it. God, you are, you are a great and merciful God. And Lord, I pray that you open our hearts and minds to your scripture. God, that you continually draw us, that you bring us close to you. And Lord, that you give us true and strong confession of a disciple to say, where else can we go? Our Lord Jesus Christ has the words of eternal life and died on the cross and was rose again on the third day. And God, that the truth of your word gives us life. God, watch over us through this next busy week to come. God, give us grace and mercy. And Lord, give us the fortitude and perseverance to wrestle through your word. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.